Welcome to the DevReady Podcast, where we're helping non-techs build better tech. Today, we have Salim Qureshi joining us, entrepreneur-turned-investor. Salim, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm so happy that, that I'm uh, speaking to you guys today. So we yeah, really, Yes, really appreciate you coming on. And today, we brought you on just to talk a little bit about digital transformation. And we know you're working with a lot of boards in terms of pre-IPOing, etc. So tell us a little bit about your background and what digital transformation might need for some businesses? Okay. So my background is I started off as an entrepreneur about uh, 17 years ago. And I was studying medicine and my research was on the human brain and neurology and basically how chemicals travel from one neuron to another, how neurotransmitters travel from one neuron to another. Lo and behold, I got a research grant and I decided then to hire my professors to come work for me. So I went from being a research assistant then, then to a CEO. And then, you know, we relied heavily on tech. So we were in the assessment industry. So we relied heavily on tech to really understand how people are talking at that point in time people were talking about ai and people were talking about ml and all these things but we wanted to really understand what is intelligence forget about you know artificial intelligence so if you can understand what's intelligence then you know then it's very easy to create algorithms which would mimic how intelligence would work anyway so we had a couple of exits and from there the money that we had uh, accumulated that went into a fund and mm-hmm. so I went from being an, an entrepreneur to an investor. And then as time went on, and especially in, in the last couple of years, what I realized is that the world is, several industries are so far behind. For example, the, the education industry is so far behind. It is a little um, bit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, with respect to digitization, with respect to using the power of the technology that's available. And I last decided... Last they probably haven't been. Yeah, things are changing. Yeah. <laughs> they have to. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. things are changing. But but you know what's really interesting? What's really interesting is that although the technology has been introduced into the education sector, so hence ed tech, right? Mm-hmm. But the people are still, you know, analog. They are so yesterday, and this the pandemic has been very eye-opening for parents who are now who have their kids at home and they're seeing the school come into their homes and they're seeing the value or lack thereof that's being provided through the education which just means that the education system is due for a very big overhaul how would you find it anthony i don't know i've got little kids anthony's um got a daughter at home just what are you preschool uh, not quite school yeah. transition prep program so yeah. just before yeah. to get her ready i'm but, not sure what you mean by lacking because she's getting enough material to go through uh-huh. because she's so young she can't physically do everything herself on the computer she's not capable yet so we're helping yeah, yeah. but i don't see anything lacking with what they're providing yeah. all right so it's very so you might not see it for younger kids but if let's talk about grade two grade three you know grade five, grade 12. So all the reports that we are seeing from, you know, from the U.S., a lot of schools within the European region, a lot of the schools within Africa, definitely schools within Southeast Asia and in countries like Vietnam and Thailand and Philippines, 
the education system is so backwards. It's not training our kids for 2030. And these kids are going to graduate in 2034. One of the reasons is because the teachers are, they themselves don't know what 2030 is going to look like. Right? The people who are setting the curriculum, they don't know what 2030 is going to look like. Hence, the whole curriculum is so far behind. It's, so basically, we're teaching kids you know, the curriculum of the 1980s. Yeah, nothing's really changed there. From it's a yeah. like thing what it they is. taught in the syllabuses. Yeah. But yeah. Potentially what you're describing is more of probably an issue to do with the culture in the country and the way things are being taught at their universities. Because I would you, say... You're, yeah, you're absolutely but, right. You're absolutely right. But that's no excuse for putting your own kids at, at risk. So, no, of course not. So you have a lot of very successful models, such as the education models within the Scandinavian countries. Mm-hmm. But then you also have a complete disparity and a bias when it comes to the U.S. The, uh, for example, the LA Unified education system is so far behind in comparison to, you know, the private schools within the U.S. Same state, California, you know, maybe about you know 50 miles apart, but it's a night and day difference. And Again, so there are several things that are wrong that need transformation. And digital transformation is only a part of the solution. We're talking about the education sector. Each sector is different, so we can't generalize. But in the the education sector within the U.S., for example, so uh, there's a digital divide, and the inner city kids, especially kids of color, they are are being underserved, let's put it like that. Mm -hmm. If we take a look at what's happening in places like India and Pakistan and Vietnam and Philippines and other places, the curriculum is so backwards, it's unbelievable. They might be good in a couple of subjects such as math, but everything else is so behind. So EdTech has definitely brought them the tools. However, the teachers need to be retrained. Well, first of all, the biggest problem is that the teachers don't really know how to teach online because they're more accustomed to teaching in a classroom setting, right? That's a completely, a classroom teacher is a completely different breed than someone who can teach online, you know, because the the science and the mechanics of teaching are completely different. Yeah, there's no human interaction face-to-face. Yeah. It's a person talking to a camera. Yeah. but And the key over here is how do you keep kids engaged? How do you keep kids learning? And Especially that's, when they're not in that classroom environment, I think it'd be a lot more challenging. I think when, um, when I was back at school, I think those days you're in a room with 20 kids and, um, yeah, we, we, we're paying attention to one person. But yeah. if I'm sitting here, even within the context of sitting here doing a podcast, it's not face to face. It's very different. Yeah. It's very different. Imagine talking to 30 kids. They can yeah. easily wander off and do their own thing, start searching yeah. the web and they're pretty much gone. So yeah, it's a they're very different structure at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But digital transformation is, you're going to see a huge wave that's going to take place in the digital transformation. Do you remember in the in the late 90s, there's this dot-com craze, mm-hmm. right? And if you didn't have a website, then you were kind of obsolete, right? And yes. mm. that's actually what happened, right? So mm-hmm. the world is going to have a similar dot-com moment right now. If you have not used digital transformation to progress, you know, to overcome where, you know, your current a situation at that point in time it's going to be very difficult for you to survive because you know what there's going to be this small little player you know sitting in their garage right uh, working on you know, something that looks like a bullet that will you know aim right at your heart 
you know, and you will, and that will be the end of you if you've not gone through digital transformation. And there's a whole science to going through digital digital transformation. So do you, you still name what rules apply from that sort of dot com period to now, where the doc like a website and your digital transformation, it's not about the technology. That's just a tool and the enabler. It's about the process and the culture that has to change first to make that all happen. You're absolutely right. That too. But also, there are a couple of other things that come into place over here. So, for example, the first thing that you need to do when you're talking about digital transformation is that you need to understand that, okay, so, every, so there are buzzwords that people are throwing around left, right, and center. Right? So everyone is saying, oh, we're going to build a platform. Oh, we're going to build a platform. But before you build a platform, the first thing that you actually need to do is you need to have something, you know, that something along the lines of an enterprise architecture. How is your enterprise architect? Now, an enterprise architecture is made up of four key things. You know, the first thing is a business architecture, right? And then it has an application architecture. It has a data architecture. It has a technology architecture. Remember, you're transforming digitally, right? So you're digitizing your entire business. In order to do that, your business architecture will tell, will, will help guide your business decisions, right? And they are what's going to drive, you know, the application architecture. Each business is running several applications, if not hundreds, right? For, so, for example, Zoom is an application. You know, Skype mm-hmm. is an application. Your email client is an application. You're running hundreds of applications. Now, these hundreds of applications are creating so much data, you have no idea. Now, how is this data being utilized? That's where the, the real transformation takes place, right? And the real transformation over here has now got to turn, has now got to do with turning your data into dollars. And how does that happen? This is a whole part of digital transformation, right? So people are talking about platform, 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 right? They're thinking about building a platform, but what's that platform going to do, right? How is that platform going to uh, communicate with other platforms or how will you be able to communicate with your clients? People are not really understanding that. But yes, they are understanding this buzzword, digital transformation. Yes, yeah, so Some people are going to get, yeah. Focus on the value they're returning to their customers, not just trying to jump on the bandwagon and yeah. go along with the train pretty much. Yeah. And some people are going to get it right and some people are really going to struggle. And and those people who don't approach digital transformation are going to become obsolete so quickly. You have no idea. Well, it's already happening in industries. It's not just like it's um. So you see, like you mentioned, the person in the garage can create a new piece of technology and disrupt. That happens all over the place. So you've got. Yeah. But there's, I think when you talk about digital transformation, from my perspective, also is a bit of business model transformation as well. So. When yeah. we're thinking digitally, we can shift the business model at the same time and not trying to copy paste. I, the, the differentiation I see is there's digitization, taking what you have now and converting it to something digital, or do you transform your whole business model with technology? That's a very different conversation because a few people get lost in just copy paste what I do now. Let's just put that online and I don't look at how they're transforming what they're doing. Technology affords so many more opportunities for you to be able to it transform does. and get more value either internally mm-hmm. or externally towards your customers. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, a distinction that most people forget. It's digital transformation to them just means oh, mm-hmm. our service is now online. Yes. yes. But it's what could that yeah. service become because you're online? What other mm-hmm. opportunities are available now? Like I said, yes. how can you use the data that you have to turn mm-hmm. it into dollars by providing more value or increasing efficiencies or skipping a couple of steps out of a process because you can now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I've been studying the digital transformation processes. Uh, so one of the things that I'm doing right now is helping pre-IPO companies, you know, prepare for their IPOs. Now, if you're working or uh, with a company that has, let's say, 30,000 employees, right? Suppose yes. it's an HR company, right? And they are getting ready for an IPO. At that point in time, the going for an i so digital transformation actually increases your value significantly aside from the the data that you're collecting the way that you position yourself it it also increases the perception or elevates the perception of you in front of potential investors mm-hmm. right? so, are you working with startups taking in the pre IPO or the existing established businesses so i run a fund the fund name is assessment fund mm-hmm. and we have several portfolios. So we do invest in startups, but I don't personally manage that particular portfolio. My other portfolio managers, you know, take a look at that. Mm-hmm. What I like to do is I like to address or work with mature companies okay. that have been around for a little while and mm-hmm. now they are ready to have a liquidity event. So that liquidity event could mean either they go IPO or they yes. go down a private equity route. Both have similarities. They're not the same, but both have similarities. But it's all got to do with understanding or making your investors or potential investors see and understand how you will be relevant for tomorrow. It's a, it's the same thing for a startup. You know, the dynamics might be slightly different, but it's the same thing. You just need you need to show your investors how you are going to be the one who will be able to disrupt. Right? So startups talk about disruptions, right? M- more mature companies talk about business continuity. Yeah, mm-hmm. the startups are technology first with existing things. Yeah. are process-driven and ingrained in their culture and have their ways. So the transformation would make a huge difference for them. It can. On that, Salim, how do you find working with, like we work with a lot of corporate plays and businesses trying to build technology within them, but generally find there's a lot of pushback, especially within the bigger the organization, um, the more challenging it might be for people within it to embrace technology because of the fear factor of, oh, it might replace my job or why should I give up what I do in my head and convert that into tech? It's a very interesting model. How do you balance that if you're working at it? Obviously, from the board down, what do you do to get the board to even embrace? Because sometimes board members don't even get what technology is, especially if they're in older nature and have been around for a little while. Too many layers of bureaucracy. In some yeah, they can. Yeah. <laughs> mm. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So one of the reasons why the boards are not able to understand the technology it's actually the fault of their technology vendors, right? Or the people who are pitching the technology to them. You see, mm-hmm. the boardroom is not tech savvy. The boardroom is usually made up of an older generation, right? Mm-hmm. That used to deal with business in a slightly different manner, right? So mm-hmm. the boardroom is probably made up of people who know how to fight, you know, let's say the financial crisis, the Asian financial crisis in, in the mid or the late 90s. Right. They it might be made up of the people who are who fought the dot com bust in, in two thousand. It might be made up of you know people who are, who are much older as well. You know that go who date back as the the stock market crash of nineteen eighty seven. So to those people, if you start coming and start talking about digital transformation, they're not going to get it. Right. 
And you know something? It's not the fault of the board. Right? It's the fault of the people who are communicating it to the board. And that's why they're not able to close a sale. So, for example, a tech vendor who wants to pitch something to a board but cannot talk in the language of the boardroom, they're going to fail. It's, um, in terms of the language of the boardroom, yeah, what, do, what does the boardroom care about? Let's put it that way. Okay, so the boardroom's responsibility at the end of the day, right, is to increase shareholder value. Mm. So you're going to be talking to me about servers and cloud and this way, firmware and VMware and all these things. How does this help me increase my earnings per share? Mm. All right? yep. It's all about dollars saved or extra money in the bank. Yeah, absolutely. Or how does this help increase or elevate my GRC, my governance risk and compliance? Mm-hmm. Right? Or how does this help increase my business continuity or, or my business sustainability? Right. So that's these are the core things that affect the boardroom. Now, at the end of the day, regardless of what a boardroom says or a board member says, at the end of the day, it's all about earnings per share, you know, because that's a resp- the board has a fiduciary responsibility to the organization, uh, to its investors, to its shareholders. Right? So, if the uh, vendor or the person pitching the technology does not understand the language of the boardroom, you know, the thought process is not going to go through. Uh, this is one of the main reasons why, you know, one of my main responsibilities that I've taken upon myself is to basically educate the boardroom on the impact of digital transformation from a financial standpoint. So I, I talk to them from the, with respect to the balance sheet. Now, everyone is able to understand balance sheet. Everyone is yeah, able to get that number. Right? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> you might from not that, be able to. Yeah, go ahead. From that perspective, so. You mentioned it's it's the vendor's responsibility to sell it into the board. I think you're correct. It's uh, in in reality, if you can't sell the board on what's important to them, then that's the fault of the salesperson. So, but also from the board's perspective, does the board need to position themselves to be open to digital transformation? Because you can find roadblocks at a board level if there's no openness to this. So how do you approach that? Should some people on the board be tech savvy? What would you recommend in that aspect or, if you're going to be just building your board? Minded even, mm. So they're not stuck in their ways? Okay. So if person A comes and they start yeah. talking and pitching all kinds of really, really amazing tech and platforms and integration and you know mm. migration and everything, right? and data lakes and data warehousing. And the other person comes, and there's person B who comes, and he says, you know what? If you adopt this thing, you know, this particular technology, right, the net result would be an increase in your earnings, you know, by 20%. Yes, it's a different conversation, something they can understand. Absolutely, Mm -hmm. absolutely. So the boardrooms will always be open to increasing shareholder value, right? Mm -hmm. But the problem is that the people who are pitching, they miss out on this whole thing, right? Because mm-hmm. they're living in their own silos. And you know what? A lot of the people who are pitching technology right now are millennials, right? Not understanding that mm-hmm. the, the boardroom is not really the millennials, right? It's a lot of the baby boomers, right? And it's also the Generation X, right? Mm-hmm. So as it is, there's a complete divide with respect to the thought process. So the millennial will be talking a million miles an hour while the the boardroom will be thinking, what is he really trying to say over here? Right? So again, mm-hmm. the responsibility the responsibility to the shareholders comes from the boardroom, right? 
but the responsibility for the adoption of the technology you know is not the boardroom's fault it's a lot of the fault comes down to the to the people who are pitching it so okay. yes the boardroom is responsible to its shareholders right mm-hmm. so that's where the responsibility lies but you know if i don't re- suppose i'm trying to learn chinese and if and if you are speak if you're teaching me chinese in chinese without translating that into a little bit of english before you, you know, go into chinese and i'm going then you're losing me from the very you know from the very beginning yeah so that messaging yeah. is important yeah. Oh, even if it's like what we talk about, it's never about the tech in reality. It's always about the outcome. So if you're more outcome focused, solution selling, what are you actually selling? What am I going to get from this? It's, it's the same conversation. You walk into any conversation and talk about the tech stack, the AI that's in this and the amazing things this does or the encryption mechanisms, bits and pieces. It can come off well if someone's tech, but if they're not, you can lose them pretty quickly and they just don't understand the context. And I think that's, it's an important point. We need to talk to the people that we're selling to and in the, in the same mindset and same language that they use, not the language we use. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting ready with one of the companies that I'm working with. We're getting ready for an acquisition, right? Okay. As we're getting ready for an acquisition, we're taking a look at how this particular acquisition will increase the uh, you know the the organization's value with respect to earnings per share right because at the end of the day for the boardroom it all comes down to earnings per share right so how are we reducing our cost if we acquire this if we're reducing our cost automatically that impacts the earnings per share the earnings per share goes up which means the pe ratio comes down which means that your value that you are you are undervalued, which means that someone will start buying your stock and your, you know, your your price of the stock will go up. So as we're making this acquisition, we're studying how through an acquisition, we will be able to move faster towards digital transformation. Okay. Right? Those who cannot or who find it very difficult to build the whole process of digital transformation can always start acquiring. Mm. You know, entire businesses or business units which will help them move, move faster. Things. Yeah. Correct. Well it becomes a acquisitions one thing, but it becomes how that acquisition's managed because if it's not managed yeah. well they can end up pretty badly as well. So I think yes, acquisition is a way to bring in resource and capability. And then how that capability is managed is also very important. Yeah. Mm. So in terms of the way you look at it, let's just take take a lens back because you've talked about a bit about vendors and tech vendors coming in and potentially being millennials pitching to boards and picking, pitching to organizations around transformation. Some of the opportunities that you see for people from the outside in that can add value to some of these big organizations, where do you see the opportunity lies over the next three to five years? That's actually a very interesting question. Mm. That's a very, very interesting question because... Three to five years is actually a lifetime. No it one. is. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I didn't say ten. To, I didn't say ten plus years because there's no such thing anymore. <laughs> Three is a little cusp of probably what we can get our head around right now. <laughs> the next few months is probably a challenge. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. So the way I'm taking a look at things, mm. it's becoming very evident that uh-huh. there is going to be a very, very big paradigm shift in how people work. Mm. So regardless of what industry you're in, you know, the work yes. from home concept is now becoming, forget about being a reality, it's becoming mass adoption of work from home. Right? It so has been. I agree with that. The other thing that's happening is that as unemployment is increasing, 
stock market uh, or mm-hmm. uh, or stock prices are also increasing. Now, that's yes. never happened before. Right? This is no. happening for the first time. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, the last time a glimpse of this was felt was in in, in the in the collapse in two, in two thousand eight. Basically, what started happening was that when the financial crisis hit the world, people started, companies started laying people off. And as they started laying people off, they started bringing in or they started adoption of technology. And as they started adoption of technology, they went into something called RPA, Robotic Process Automation. And as RPA started kicking in, they realized, oh, you know what? I don't really need Jack to do this work for me, right? We can just you know, slap in a couple of applications together and that will then, you know, serve uh, for, you know, they'll replace Jack. And that was the first, you know, digital transformation, first wave of digital transformation, so to say, right? And then what happened is that the stock prices, you know, started going up, but unemployment was not going down. I'm, I'm talking about global unemployment, right? Yes. And then the world saw a new term being coined called long-term unemployed. So these are the people who have been searching for jobs for the longest time but are not able to find jobs. Now, with this pandemic, where everyone is now being forced to work from home, you know, companies, if you take a look at the stock price of the company, they're going up. Yes, you know, there's a correction that's due. Yes, all of these things are are going to take place. But companies are still making money. Let's not talk about the stock price. Let's talk about the earnings per share. Companies are still making quite a bit of money. They're not being as impacted, especially the larger companies, the smaller companies. The larger techie-based companies, there's a lot of still buying online has shifted. So these large companies are still making good money. But there are overinflated companies out there still right now in the current climate. There's some massive overinflated prices on some of these businesses as well. Yeah, but but the people who have overinflated these prices, they're they're obviously investors, right? And some of them are pretty intelligent investors. And the Mm. prices are being overinflated primarily because, you know, they're realizing that the large tech companies are going to grow even larger, right? And the smaller... Consolidation. Yeah. Yeah, some of the smaller player is going to be, they're going to be you know, priced out of the market or they're going to, they, they won't be able to survive. Right? But anyways, the real challenge for the world is going to be unemployment because this work from home, you know, thing is really going to test people or test people's ability to upskill themselves, right? So that they can stay relevant. Get it. Right. As RPA is kicking in. So, you know, it's, it's like, Lord of the Rings kind of scenario where all of, you know, battle forces, digital transformation coming in and unemployment coming in and, you mm-hmm. know, people not being able to upskill themselves and then, you know, then Mordor coming in. And, and all Is it that they're not stuff. able to up them, upskill themselves or they're not afforded the opportunity by their employer? Because some people will still upskill themselves on their own merit and their own time. You know something? If there's anyone that's out there who says that I don't have the resources to upskill themselves, they are flat out lying. Correct. Because everyone's got the great resource called YouTube. Yes. There you go. That's a minimum. Yeah. There's there so you much go. on there. Mm. Yeah. So you can either, you, you can either stay relevant, right? Or you can not be counted. That the, the choice is entirely up to you. As you said, three to five years, right? So the three year cusp, the people who are not doing you know, who are not constantly learning, right? They will be so left out of the new economy. And no one really knows what the new economy looks like, but there's a new economy that's being created. 
But self-learning or lifelong learning, as some you know, people are coining it, is a very, very crucial and very relevant phenomenon. And we all will need to become lifelong learners. Uh, look, nowadays you don't need a college degree right, to get a, apply for a job. And even the most prestigious firms such as you know, Ernest & Young and you know, KPMG and Deloitte and IBM and Facebook and you know, Google, you don't need a four-year college degree. And one of the reasons why you don't need a four-year college degree is because it's cheaper for them or it's much easier for them to take kids out of high school or, or kids right out of college even before they've graduated and retrain them. But one of the reasons why this is happening is because the education sector is so far behind. Companies would rather re would rather have people unlearn to relearn and things that are that are more relevant. And this is something that's happening, you know, globally. I think that's not a problem with the education system because they can't always jump onto the newest thing and teach you the newest stuff. Yeah. Because it's, they it's might jump onto something and then that's mm. no longer relevant six months later. So, the, so, they, so that's... I was going to say, it's their responsibility sort of to instill in the student like a willingness to learn. They have to teach you the fundamentals and you have to take that on board. So... so that's if what I, I got have... out of like university. Yeah, but yeah, not everyone but, does. <laughs> yeah. No, no, but, but what you got out of university, mm. the time that you were in university was a completely different time. Yeah. Right? And yeah, it was 2000. Yeah. Plus, you need to think about Anthony, what you're learning at university was tech. Yeah. So you had to go and learn. It was not learning out of a textbook and yeah. accounting practice. Yeah, or it's different. Things, it's, yes. The accounting stuff is different. Yeah. That's not going to change. Too often. Yeah. Yeah, but it, but it, it is. It's big legislative yeah. sweeps for something to change yeah. for them to rewrite the, the, the syllabus at a university. Same in the yeah, but, law department. So yeah, but, what yeah. is in those books stays in those books for a long it time does, because that's the but, law. But that's what stays in the books. But the people don't get educated on the changes that are occurring in business. So accounting today is very different from accounting 10 years ago. Yeah. 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 And Anthony, if you forgive me, I'm going to disagree with you. Oh, right? Not a problem. Um, and one of the reasons why I'm going to disagree with you is because um, if I am paying for education, mm -hmm. it's your responsibility, the, the people who I'm paying, right? It's their responsibility to make sure that what I'm learning is completely up to date. I, I agree with you because I remember sitting back at uni and learning, and I think, Anthony, you can attest to this, I think you're going through a games degree and learning things back from the 1980s. So yeah. I think that's not relevant to even the time of what you were doing. So, yes. I agree it needs to be relevant, but there's a degree of relevancy that it has to have, but yes. you can't get too far forward with that stuff, especially in the tech space. I think okay, if they so teach you the wrong thing, within six yeah. months you've lost yeah. it potentially. Yeah. So that's yeah. to teach yeah. you the fundamentals regardless of what it's in, not the newest, shiniest thing. You're absolutely right. But the tech space is an anomaly, right? So let's yeah. take a look at it. You know, that's uh, another kettle uh, of together. Yeah. I'll give you a real-life example. I won't mention the name of the country, Right, but this is uh, something you know, which is uh, happening in, in many nations. So there's this really big university. I'm talking about last year, 2019. A very big university, a national university, and they're teaching, they have a course on mass communication, right? mm -hmm. or a degree in mass communication. And they're spending two semesters. It's a four-year college degree, right? They're spending two semesters on radio and broadcasting. Right? Okay. Not podcasting. Right? Radio and broadcasting, right? And what FM is and what AM is and what you know all of these other yesterday's technologies are, right? Now that's that's a disservice. You're spending two semesters in mass communication, 
and you're talking about this, right? And they have less than half a semester on social media. That's where it all should be. <laughs> right in the current climate. <laughs> yeah. If you talk about mass communication right now, where is it happening? Yeah. Yeah. The biggest place yeah. to build a mass following is Instagram, for example. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Not- so uh, in that particular context, you see, there's so many plays that uh, that mm. are going on and uh, the developing nations, they are so far behind, right? Not to say that the developed nations are doing too well either because the culture is a little more advanced than the developed nations, hence they get a little, you know, they get a bump, a natural bump. But the developing nations, where, where the majority of the world lives, where two-thirds of the world lives, things are things are not looking too rosy. What are, what are your thoughts? We've obviously been impacted. The work from home, you've mentioned quite a bit. This really breaks down borders from what I see. Now, if it hasn't already, we're in a, we're in an economy that we can get help from anywhere. Do you see bigger organizations opening up more borders, more overseas employment as a result of this? I know it's already happening, but if everyone's working from home, what's the difference? The borders are gone. All of a sudden, the opportunity opens up for everybody to expand across borders. And for me, talking to Anthony, he's in Melbourne. He doesn't need to be in Melbourne. He could be anywhere across the world and it doesn't really matter. You're sitting in Pakistan right now, and it feels like you're uh, in the the same conversation as we are now. It is. It's... So that is completely squash borders if it hasn't already. And I think the working from home is going to make a dramatic shift there. So what are your thoughts on that and how it might leverage the way we work as, as businesses, as communities, as startups, as whatever it might be? So that's a very interesting question. And there are so many ways to look at this. And if you allow me, I would like to shed light on a very different angle of this whole yeah, sure. thing, a more, more, more of a political angle okay. uh, without being political. The world is becoming less globalized mm-hmm. and more polarized. Right? There's, more, there's an increase in the national sentiment uh, in every nation. Right? Mm. Uh, the importers of talent, they are looking inwards, not outwards. Right? So the importers of talent, you know, who were they? It's always the U.S. has always led the way. Yes. You know, then Canada has always led the way. Then Australia has always led the way. Mm-hmm. Now, while this is happening, and and, uh, and uh, a lot of the so you know, the borders are closing not only because of Corona but also because of mindset, you know, within the you know, from a political standpoint. Now, as the borders are closing you have digital digitization that's taking place where people don't necessarily need to be in the same country. They can collaborate. No? So you, you, there's a tech term called JAD, JAD, you know, joint application developments and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So what's becoming even more interesting is that a U.S. developer for, and I'm just going to use hypothetical numbers over here, right? A U.S. developer, if that individual costs, you know, $100, right? A day or an hour, right? Let's say an hour, right? If he costs a hundred dollars an hour, right? Then, and again, these are just hypothetical numbers, right? Yeah, then, an Indian developer would probably cost about sixty-five dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. But you know what's happening? What's happening is that the U.S. developer now does not have a job, so he will lower his prices because he's no longer living in Manhattan, which is very expensive, right? He's working from home. He can go and live in the suburbs or better yet, he can go live on a farmland. He just needs a, a Wi-Fi connection. Yes. Right? And he's, he's able to log on. 
And if that individual reduces his rates, because now he's becoming a gigger, even though he's a full-time employee, but you know he's treated as a gigger, right? So if he drops his rates down to, let's say, $70, he will be hired over the Indian you know, developer. Right? Agree so, with that. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. So, yeah, so there. Not only is when it comes to work from home, not only is there a political, you know, shift to this whole thing, but how people are fighting for new contracts, right, or fighting for new projects. That is also, you know, changing the entire dynamics of how how the the work from home salary dynamics, you know, projects, how all of these things are moving. So when you're talking about borders. Borders have not really made too big of a difference for for quite a while, but now with this whole thing, we're going to be seeing something very interesting uh, you know, as time goes on. I think yeah, they leaned on that a little bit there. It does open up the opportunity to separate from a city, for example. Like uh, anyone yeah. can be working from anywhere within a country yeah. or within a space, and I think um, that is going to be the biggest shift. And the impact across that is. At the moment, in big cities like Melbourne, Sydney, for example, New York, for example, yes, there the land prices are ridiculously high because of the demand to get into those cities. Now, if the demand diminishes and spreads out, the whole infrastructure and the way we do business can completely shift and the dynamic can change. So that's where I see some opportunity opening up, especially within countries. There, for me, I see it as a big opportunity for businesses to be more flexible with their employment especially the learning we've all had and give maybe a little bit of freedom off the back of the, the city itself. Cause then we can look, you can see you walk, you look at the streets, they're reduced by um, travel times reduced. If you want to travel anywhere. So if we can keep people at home, it just changes the whole dynamic of the way we do business. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting times ahead. So if you're, so from your perspective, Celine, if I'm sitting in a business right now, what do I need to be scared of if I'm doing nothing that's in terms of digital transformation? What should I be worried about? What should I be focusing on? And who should I be questioning? So, and what would your position be or your designation be right now? I'm sitting on a board and our business has been going sideways for a year or two. Or should I be concerned? What should I be doing? All right. You should definitely be concerned, right? Especially if there's no, if there's no transformation that if there's no talk of any transformation, right? Mm. You should definitely, definitely be concerned. And the reason why you should be concerned is because the small guy, right? Suppose that you have 500 employees, right? In, in your mm. company. The small guy with less than five employees can take your clients away very easily, very quickly, right? Especially if you are in the HR space, right? If you're running a, you know, an HR shop, right? Or a recruitment shop. The smaller guy can take your business away just like this, you know, because there's so many tools. You you no longer need to hire recruiters because, you know, you have bots that can, you know, do a lot of the work for you, the interviewing, the screening, and so on and so forth. Right? So if, if your business is going sideways and you're not doing anything with respect to digital transformation, then, you know, rest in peace. <laughs> <Like it. laughs> so there's no three to five years for you, basically. So it's a tough one because we've done business. Uh, the business has continuously evolved. And I think you've, you've touched a bit learning side of things. And I think even at a board level or whatever level you're at, you need to be learning and you need to be aware of what's coming. Yeah. I, I want to give you, you know, it's easier for smaller companies to transform, right? But mm. it's very difficult for large companies to transform. Yeah, I agree with yeah. that. So we, my team is 
you know, so full disclosure, we are getting ready to increase our uh, our shareholding in Volkswagen. And okay. my team is actively researching, you know, should we invest in Tesla or should we invest in Volkswagen? And it would be a significant investment from our from our portfolio. Right? Okay. Um, a very large chunk of our portfolio is going to be going towards this. That, as we are doing our research, we have come across something so interesting that it has just completely blown my mind away. Right? And that is that Volkswagen, which used to be an automotive company, is is transforming itself away from being an automotive company to being a software company. Could you? Can you believe that? No, because, I don't know that, but I do now. That's sort interesting, of yeah. considering the way the direction yeah. cars are traveling in, and yeah. self-driving cars. Uh, it's not about the car; it's about the software. Without the software, there is yeah. no self-driving car. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because now the the car is a part of the business process. The real value is in live, letting the individual, the owner, live their life to their fullest. Right? And the car is just uh, a tool. So we've built something called a, a one digital platform. Right? And this one digital platform, it's so out there. Okay, just to give a little bit of a context, the, the revenue for Volkswagen for 2019 was $252 billion. The revenue for Tesla was $16 billion. Yeah, and well, how's the value of Tesla so high? But let's not go there. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm right? just watching that, that share just can increase like, <laughs> like a rocket and waiting for it to come tumbling down. But yeah, let's continue. Yeah. So VW has ma- manages 12 brands, right? So mm. Bentley and Audi and you know, Lamborghini and, you know, uh, Bucati and Ducati and Man and Seat and so on and so forth, right? So so they're realizing that, you know, they run 122 factories globally. Right? Yes. And if they move towards a digital transformation, what they need to do is make sure that each factory is learning from each other, right? So if, if parts are breaking down or there are lots of complaints that are coming from the factory in South Africa, how is China learning that? Right? And how is another uh, company, uh, another factory learning that? So, so they are actually moving into a full software play, and to the point whereby they want to be known as a software company internally. Obviously, they are obviously creating cars, so they don't necessarily want to change that perception in, in the in the eyes of the audience or, or the buyers. But the, internally, they're becoming a very very savvy software to the point whereby they are letting go of their you know enterprise tools they use Oracle you know as their backbone yes. and now they're building their own. Oh, they're replacing it. Well, wow. okay. Yeah, and and they are so far advanced that a company like Ford is now saying that hey guys, listen, you know we want to piggyback off of the platform that you're building. And what's happened by Ford coming to them is all of a sudden they have just they've started developing a Play Store of sorts, right, for the automotive industry. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so if a large company like Volkswagen is able to, you know, maneuver itself and go through a complete rethink of their, you know, of who they are and where they want to go and create a whole new roadmap towards digital transformation, then it's no excuse for a smaller player. Because, I mean, if you're managing a balance sheet of $252 billion, right, and you are moving towards a complete retransformation, you know, that, that should be some concession for a smaller player. 
I think that tells everybody that you must be doing this, in my opinion. Yeah. If you're $250 billion revenue and you're transforming the way you do business, everybody needs to be transforming the way they do business. That's what I get out of that, that context of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, Salim, thank you for joining us. Um, it's been very insightful around digital transformation and what that might mean to a business and how that might actually add value to your bottom line. And then especially, I think, there are some take- key takeaways for me around the ability for the vendor to sell up to the board. And I think that's very important, but also anybody is capable of transforming and mm-hmm. don't treat it as digital. And then in that case, transformation for Volkswagen is about changing to a software company. Digital transformation is not taking what you do now and just turning it online. It's evolving the business model. So for me, it's about taking those learnings. How do we evolve? How do we add more value to our consumers or to the next level of who our consumers might be in the next 35 years as well? So we need to be thinking ahead there too. And just before we let you go, Salim, I'm going to say, is there any sort of key points or tips you can give any sort of like the smaller organizations on how they should begin the transformation? Yeah, so the first thing that you should start doing is you should spend a lot of time on understanding what your business looks like today and how you want it to look like tomorrow, right? And then from there, you should draw a roadmap, right? And you don't need to spend any money in order to do all of this, right? This is more of a thinking process. And once you've understood, you know, what transformation actually looks like for you through this roadmap, that's when you'll be able to, you know, take the first step towards a real transformation process. The transformation starts in strategy, not in implementation. So I think that's a good takeaway. Yeah. <laughs> the technology yeah, is never the starting point. No, it never is. That's just the uh, the tool that gets you there. So, so let me, if anyone wants to reach out and get a hold of you or make communication, how might they contact you? I'm available on Twitter. Yeah, okay. Uh-huh. So my handle is SQView. So you can contact me through Twitter. That's the probably oh, the easiest way. Yeah. Easiest way. And I'll share out um, the content and the links in the show notes when we post them out. Yeah, perfect. All right, wonderful, wonderful. Oh, I'll send you my email address so we can put it in there as well. Oh, perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much, guys. This was so nice, and I'm so happy that uh, I was able to connect with you guys today. No, I really Thanks appreciate so it. And good to learn a bit more about you and your background and where you're headed and where you're going moving forward. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, thank you. It's been all a great right. chat. Okay, all right. Take care. Thanks, Thanks. so much. I'll Thank speak you. to you guys soon. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.